it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for joining us every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our online home is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. The show's based in D.C., but occasionally it emanates from elsewhere. And yesterday and today, we've been coming to you live from London, England, at the Fox Bureau here in London. And we are very excited to be here indeed. In fact, coming up later this hour, Tom Harwood, my friend, and a political analyst and host at GB News here in the U.K., he will join us on who's going to be the next prime minister of the United Kingdom. It's a big question. I think Americans should care about our most significant ally. We'll get the lay of the land from Tom. In the next hour, Mark Goldwine from the Committee for a Responsible Budget. He's going to really walk us through the, I would say, dire consequences of President Biden's rumored plan to, quote unquote, cancel a lot of student debt for a limited number of Americans. I think it is a wildly reckless policy if it goes through tomorrow, as the reports are now emerging. Mark Goldwine with his analysis upcoming. Jessica Tarloff, our colleague here at Fox, might disagree. We'll see. We'll have her also in our middle hour. And then it's not Fridays with Cat; It's Tuesdays with Cat. Cat Timpf is going to drop by, having just guest-hosted Gutfeld last night, which is a pretty cool thing. Always looking forward to my chats with our friend Cat Timpf. As we get going, though, here in London, today and just this week in general marks six months of the war in Ukraine, the unprovoked, outrageous invasion of that sovereign country by Russia. And a lot of a lot of blood has been spilled in the subsequent six months. The Russians, I don't think, were expecting things to go that the way that they have overall. I think the world has been very dialed into this conflict for a while, but perhaps back home, some of the attention has waned as other things come to the fore. But six months in, I think it's important for us to talk about it and focus on it, especially because there are some pretty significant developments that have happened in Ukraine and also in Russia in the last couple days alone. And perfect for us, from my perspective, the perfect person to have this conversation is sitting right here with me in London at the Bureau. It's Greg Palcott, who is the senior foreign affairs correspondent at Fox News. He's been here for many years. You've seen him all over the news channel over the course of his career. And, Greg, we were talking off the air. You've been back and forth to Ukraine four times during this war? If you include the diplomacy, absolutely, four times this year. So give us the latest in terms of what you're hearing from officials when you talk to Ukrainian officials in particular, they are putting on a brave face, a strong face. That's great. But there's a big Wall Street Journal story today suggesting that actually six months in, momentum very literally does and palpably seem to be on the side of the Ukrainians against the Russians. Is that something that you believe 
to be true based on your contacts? I think their staying power guy is really there. I mean, we were there in January and early February, and all the talk was, yes, Russia was going to invade. And guess what? Russia was going to take maybe three or four days to run over Kiev, to run over the south of uh, Ukraine, to run through the east and basically wrap it up in a couple of weeks. Uh, they were going to do it in a, in a series of ways, uh, hybrid manners coming down from the sky, missiles, et cetera, et cetera. It was going to be all over within a month's time. Well, guess what? The Ukrainians did something different. They fought back, fought back hard, and a very dramatic turnaround, a fending off of the Russians from the Kyiv area in that first month. In the latter months, well, we've seen it turn into more of a grinding, grinding fight, almost like a, a World War One-style trench warfare. But they, yeah, they, this, they are hanging in there, and yes, they still believe they can do it, guy. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no doubt that just the arc that you described is accurate. The Russians were extremely confident they're going to win this thing in a walk, and a lot of analysts in the West believe the same thing. And then to the surprise of many and to the immense eternal credit of the Ukrainian people, that's not what happened. Then there did seem to be this downshift into a stalemate in the east. And now that's starting to change as well because we've seen some pretty bold actions from the Ukrainians in Crimea, which, of course, is their territory that Russia stole back in the Obama administration. There have been some attacks on, on a Russian airfield there, for example, uh, attacks against munitions even on Russian soil, the Ukrainians aren't just sort of satisfied to let this thing sort of putter along. They are playing to win. They want to push, and they want to push hard, Guy. I mean, yes, I've spent time with the soldiers. I've spent time with the civilians, and they believe in their country. They believe they're fighting for their own land. It's not like they're going to another country and they're invading. But I think the crucial thing in the last month or two, Guy, is, is that we've actually seen the effect of the weapons that have been imported from the United States and other countries. Mm -hmm. We keep hearing about HIMARS. Well, that's a multiple-launch rocket. Uh, transport-based uh, uh, weapon that is hitting, hitting well, and hitting targeted locations behind the lines, uh, Russian we weapons dumps, uh, Russians uh, uh, command and control centers, and that, I think, is really making the difference in the last, uh, oh, I'd say six weeks or so. Some of the news today is that the U.S. government is urging Americans in Kiev, the capital city of Ukraine, to get out of there, to be very careful, don't gather in large groups. There's at least some chatter, it seems, out there that the Russians might be planning, I don't know, missile launches or something. It might align with Ukrainian Independence Day, and Putin might want to make some sort of a statement. What's happening there? Yeah, I, I think our, our, our colleague on the ground in Ukraine, Alex Hogan, is talking about an added number of air raid sirens, added concerns. And yes, uh, Vladimir Putin likes his holidays and likes to hit hard on anniversaries. And frankly, like symbolism, he, he's feeling a little bit frustrated right now. And there, there are signs that a lot of people are frustrated in the inside and outside the ranks of the Kremlin with how things are going. But he is still there. He is still hanging in. He's got the n number of troops. He's got the number of, he, despite age, he's got the the weaponry. And uh, both sides, I think, are are in for uh, in for some very tough months ahead. And I mean, some of the numbers that we've seen. One estimate I read was eighty five thousand casualties on the Russian side. Not all deaths, but casualties, including wounded, tens of thousands of deaths. 
some of the more elite units really decimated. And now there's discussion of, you know, where do they get literally the bodies to come in? Are they well trained? Can they actually fight and win a war? Those questions are swirling, I think, from my understanding, at the elite level in Russia, whereas they are trying very hard to blind the general population from the realities of how ugly it's gotten in Ukraine. So there's a lot of propaganda out there. But at the very top, they sort of understand how this is playing and what's actually happening. Is that something that could make Putin even more dangerous if he starts to feel threatened, perhaps within his own country? It's you sort of shudder to think what he might be willing to do, given how uh, it's totally barbaric in some ways the Russians have already been. In Ukraine, yeah, he's even avoided uh, guy the the idea that this is a war, this is an invasion, this is a special military operation. Right. According to him, he's also avoided a full scale mobilization of uh, of men of fighting age to join the army. So he's had to reach out to mercenary units like the Wagner Group. He's had to reach out to other uh, allied uh, countries that that are that are pitching in. But again, Ukrainians are hanging in, and the the crucial thing that they're doing in the last three or four weeks is focusing on this Kherson area, the, the southern part of the country. They want a counteroffensive, but even just the threat of a counteroffensive has drawn Russian troops from the eastern side down to the south. So hmm. that stalled the eastern front, and that's activated uh, more, more uh, back and forth in, in the south. Whether Ukraine can win is another question there. Meanwhile, Let's hop to Moscow, where there's a lot of intrigue right now involving uh, a targeted killing. This was the daughter, and you can jump in and correct me if I'm getting any of the broad details wrong, but the daughter of a top Putin ally, a big nationalist commentator, the daughter herself in her own right is sort of in that world as well. She was at an event in the center of Moscow, and she was killed, I believe, by a, a car bomb just in the last couple of days, and there's been a huge uh, PR offensive by the Kremlin to try to say, oh, the, you know, the new KGB has discovered who did this and Ukraine is responsible. This was an assassination of a Russian on our soil. A lot of people are saying this story doesn't quite add up. There's missing footage that doesn't make sense. Could this be an inside job? Could this be a political assassination uh, or, or professional kill for some other reason. There's lots of theories out there, which on one level is kind of exciting and intriguing, international intrigue. On the other hand, it could be quite combustible and dangerous because you don't really trust anything that comes out of the Kremlin. The Ukrainians, if they do have a hand in this, would have every reason to lie. Uh, it could be a pretext for something, right? There's all this stuff floating what can you tell us about this interesting event? It's complicated, but very, very intriguing guy. Uh, Daria Dugana was the uh, 29-year-old, uh, now 30-year-old ideologue who was killed. But, but in fact, her father, Alexander Dugana, is the key one. Some people call him Putin's brain. No, but his ideology has guided Putin in the past. Expansion into Ukraine, a new Russia taking over all of Asia. He's a very important player. So... He was killed. He wasn't killed. His daughter was killed. Mm -hmm. But the uh, they what they were targeting, according to many people, is him himself. And that's now, one of the theories that I, they they were going for him, but they got her. I read that some people said she was driving his car, so that would lend 
some credence to that. But then there's other strands of evidence suggesting that she was the target. It just it seems like there's a big cloud of mystery around all of this. And I just maybe I'm being cynical, but it seems like the type of thing where we might not ever really know the whole story. The key thing is the line from Russia is that Ukraine did it. Right. Okay? They were going after a target of somebody who was very close to Putin. The interesting inside story, however, is that this guy is even more pro-war than Putin is. In the last couple of days prior to this attack, he was actually more or less attacking the Putin government and saying, hey, you've got to fight harder. You've got to go stronger. And so there is another line of thought that mm-hmm. says that either Putin or allies of Putin went after him because he was getting he was getting ahead of his skis, basically, when it, when it comes to this. And that's an interesting point because that shows maybe there's divisions developing inside of Russia, how to conduct the war, whether to conduct the war itself or to go harder, whether Putin's doing the right thing. And I think that's the most intriguing thing about this. Greg Palcott is my guest here in studio at the London Bureau, where I've been crashing the last two days. Thanks for letting me sort of invade this little space. Uh, I, I'm very grateful. Senior foreign affairs correspondent here at Fox News with so much insight and great sourcing on this conflict. Greg, it's great to see you. Thank you, Guy. That's Greg Palcott on The Guy Benson Show. We'll take a quick break. We will come right back. Just getting started on this Tuesday from London. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson. We're back from London. It's the Guy Benson Show and reports really percolating now in the last hour or two that President Biden is poised tomorrow to announce some sort of a forgiveness, in air quotes, scheme on student loan debt. And I've talked before about why this is an egregious idea. It's also, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, others as well, a flagrant abuse of power, far beyond the authority of the president of the United States And you could say it's illegal. I see Charles Cook at National Review quoting Nancy Pelosi. So this is the Democratic Speaker of the House last year was asked about this potential idea because the left was clamoring for it. They can't pass it through Congress, even though they control the Congress. They don't have the votes because it is a catastrophic policy. And I think even some Democrats understand that. So there were these activists bleeding about how. President Biden should go it alone and do it himself. And Pelosi at the time, not long ago, a year ago, was asked about this. Here was her quote. She said, the president can't do it. That's not even a discussion. Not everybody realizes that, but the president can only postpone and delay, but not forgive. Now, I think these ongoing postponements under the guise of the pandemic, they've gone on far too long. I think they were dodgy to begin with. But the thing that Pelosi explicitly said the president could not do and doesn't have the power to do is what reportedly Biden is planning to announce tomorrow. I wonder if Speaker Pelosi will get her new marching orders and her her new talking points and if she'll maybe change her tune on this. I don't know. There have been reports that White House lawyers within the administration say we can't do this. But the Biden team, I guess, sort of feeling themselves right now. They've been told by the media they're on a winning streak and they want to now you know, add to the list by doing this thing 
that ultimately I believe would backfire badly. I mean, setting aside the economic policy of it, which I think is bad enough, the inflationary element of this, which is the last thing, we need that like a hole in the head right now, setting aside the abuse of power. I mean, those are, those are three huge things. Those are monumental things to set aside. But let's do that just for the sake of this argument, and we'll get much more into the policy in our next hour, because I, I think this is an extremely important issue. Just from a political perspective, as a political proposition, I guess the idea here would be let's go out. This is the Democratic thinking or the Biden thinking. Let's go and bribe people. Let's basically buy votes among this relatively small band of people by throwing 10 grand at them in student loan forgiveness. It's like with the just wave of a wand that he does not have under our constitutional system, but I guess he's going to try and dare the courts to do something about it, which would take potentially you know, months to finally you know, litigate, litigate and come to sort of a conclusion on this. That being said, there are some people who would benefit from this. A lot of the hardcore activists on the left want Biden to go much further than this. $10,000 to them is it's small potatoes. It's not nearly bold or visionary enough. So I'm not sure if he will really satisfy the left flank the way that they've been uh, demanding he do for now basically the entirety of his presidency. And then on the other side of the ledger, and this is where I would love to see, do they have internal polling? What is their thought process? More than eight out of 10 Americans do not have college loan debt. Eighty percent plus of the country is not carrying that debt. A majority of American adults did not go to college. And so what this president reportedly is about to do tomorrow is to tell all of those people, people who have no debt, people who never went to college, people who gave up their dream school because it was too expensive and they went somewhere more affordable, people who paid a portion of their every single paycheck of their career to pay down the debts that they knowingly incurred with eyes open and did the right thing and the responsible thing. He is telling that massive majority of Americans that they are going to be responsible, the American taxpayer, for this bailout that he doesn't even have the, doesn't even have the power to do. I think there will be a lot of resentment over this policy should, in fact, it play out the way that we're starting to hear. I think this could be on top of all the other problems that, as I said, we will explore in detail next hour. There is a huge political risk here as well. And I mean, the Republicans, even a completely incompetent opposition, should be able to make some hay out of this. And they ought to do that the moment Biden makes the announcement. If he does tomorrow, stay with us. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. From London, it's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day when the show is over. 
And joining us now here in studio at the Fox Bureau in London is my friend Tom Harwood. He's been on the show before, if you're a longtime listener. He's the political correspondent at GB News, a relatively new outfit here in the U.K. He hosts a morning show Monday through Friday called The Briefing at 9.30 a.m. London time. You can Google GB News and find Tom's stuff there. You can follow him on social as well. He's prolific, uh, particularly on Twitter if you're interested in a smart take on British politics. Tom, it's great to see you. It's great to be here. Now, I have to embarrass myself slightly, and I was thinking about this because occasionally, just to give a peek behind the curtain, when you and I hang out socially, you'll have a tipple, maybe a drink or two, and you will sometimes like to show off your American accent for me, <laughs> uh, which is highly entertaining. And I thought I would record an introduction of you done by yours truly in my British accent oh, fantastic. And, and see how badly I do, in your opinion. So this is what I put together. It's not terribly long. Cut 15. And it is now my distinct pleasure to welcome back to the program Tom Harwood, who works at GB News, not as an anchor, not as a host, but as a presenter, which is what they're called here. And we'll be discussing, of course, British politics from A to Z with Tom, whose analysis is always strong, never weak, never feeble. And good evening to you, sir. All right. You, you sound like David Attenborough. That's um, a remarkably good impression of someone from perhaps 80 years ago. Good. Well, um, I'll take it. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's possible, possible. Okay, well, that is all I needed to hear. <laughs> and I did just sneak in a little Thatcher there for you with the... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, particularly, I mean, weak, weak feeble. Yes, exactly. I, I sometimes uh, enjoy going back and watching her clips online. We played the, the a few... Full, the full quote of that is actually about Reagan. And it's about supporting Reagan's decision to use the United Kingdom as a base to fly airplanes from to bomb Libya. And, uh, because the, the Europeans wouldn't? Because over the, the, Euro the Europeans wouldn't. She was asked in an interview about it, and she goes, they're a weak lot, some of them in Europe, you know, weak, feeble. Uh, she wasn't wrong. <laughs> well, on that issue, certainly. <laughs> on a lot of issues, she wasn't wrong. All right, Tom, so let's talk about, you know, I did an impression from 80 years ago. That was, what, 30 years ago or whatever. Let's talk about today and the Conservative Party and the Tory leadership, which was thrown into chaos. Uh, some of these political scandals over here, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, eventually uh, couldn't hang on any longer. He resigned. We talked about that on the show a little bit. Whenever there's a, a new PM coming in, it's significant from an American perspective because the U.K. is our most important ally. And when there's a change in leadership, you know, I think Americans should pay some attention. So – it's a bit Byzantine to a lot of Americans to figure out how your system works at times. There is not a general election happening where the party in power is changing. Boris has been basically thrown out by his own party. And so the Tories, the conservatives, are having a race now down to two people. The winner of that race will become the next prime minister until there's a general election. Is that Roughly correct. That's right. In this country, we don't elect directly a prime minister, even though it might sound like it. Uh, we elect a parliament. And the prime minister is whoever holds the confidence of that parliament. So we elect 650 people from across the country to represent us in parliament. And the largest party, the majority party of that, will have a leader. Now, if they get annoyed with that leader, if they think that leader isn't delivering, if they lose confidence in that leader, they can throw that leader out 
the parliament remains the same but they find a process to replace that leader. It happened with Theresa May. It's happened with Boris Johnson. Well, it happened it with actually Thatcher, happened with Margaret Thatcher right, back in end. 1990 as well, two years before the next general election. And just from my perspective on the other side of the ocean, you know, our politics can be very brutal. So can yours. I mean, just when there's a little bit of blood in the water, it, it just becomes sometimes this feeding frenzy. And Boris got, you know, hounded out of office basically – it's down in this leadership competition to a man and a woman. Mm. Um, you were explaining how this works. There's not going to be like a primary election among the voters. It's a very small number, relatively speaking, of dues-paying party members who will make this choice. What does that look like? Who are these final two candidates? And is the conventional wisdom that Liz Truss, one of the two, is the heavy favorite to win? That's right. Firstly, it's a remarkably small selectorate. Selectorate, not electorate. It's only around 180,000 people who are members of the Conservative Party, we think. We don't know the full number. The party keep that to themselves. But being a member of a party means you, you pay a monthly subscription and you get to select members. You go to the meetings, you deliver the leaflets. You're that kind of activist for the party. Very like politically the, the charged base. people. The base. Uh, but a very small number of people. Only 180,000, we think. Now, these are the people that will be selecting that next leader out of two. The way the Conservative Party runs this is that MPs whittle the wide field that was initially around 14 candidates. MPs choose the final two. They do that sequentially, of day by day. Members of Parliament, exactly. And then the final two go to that Conservative Party membership. The final two, Rishi Sunak, was the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Treasury Secretary. He resigned, and that is broadly thought to have brought Boris Johnson down. He was a very heavyweight political figure, and his resignation as Chancellor is one of the big things that kicked off what Boris Johnson described as the herd moving. And when the herd moves, it moves. Uh, there were over 60 resignations from Boris Johnson's government, and that's what brought him down. Liz Truss, on the other hand, is the Foreign Secretary, what you'd call the Secretary of State. Um, she has not resigned from Boris Johnson's government, seen as more loyal towards Boris Johnson, but also many people are describing her as potentially more the candidate of the right in this race. She's the person that's running on a platform of cutting taxes and growing the economy. Whereas Rishi Sunak says that now is not the time to cut taxes and he is face basing his uh, pitch more on dealing with inflation. He says that cutting taxes might be inflationary right now. That's one of the big economic battles of this race but it looks like according to all of the polling that we've seen and we've seen a considerable degree of polling in this race and pollsters and can find these party members and only poll them they can in fact it's easier to find party members because they're more likely to respond to pollsters they're the kind of politically engaged people that might be overrepresented in normal polls right. so in their like the pollster calls are like oh lucky day right and the po and the pollsters will have their normal panels of people that they go to they can pick out the party members from there and they'll have a reasonable degree they had a good degree of success in polling the Labour leadership election that we had a couple of years ago, they had a good degree of success in finding that Boris Johnson would become the leader of the Conservative Party back in 2019, that a man called Jeremy Corbyn would become leader of the Labour Party back in 2015, a lot of people didn't believe the polls then but they did accurately say that he would become so these polls tend to be fairly accurate and Liz Truss has around a 20 to 30 point lead in every single poll that we've seen in the last few weeks. They would have to be spectacularly wrong 
for her to lose this race. So the upshot is, in all likelihood, the next prime minister here in the UK will be Liz Trust, who is the would be the third female prime minister of all time. All three conservatives, by the way, I just point that out. Liz Trust, the more conservative ideological candidate, it sounds like. Uh, but we'll see. And and when is the the final date where we'll know? The result is announced on the 5th of September at noon, and the hand of the Queen is kissed on the 6th of September. Tuesday, the 6th of September, that's when the official changeover goes, but we know the result on the 5th. Got it. And technically, Boris Johnson is sort of like zombie prime minister right now. Exactly. It's like when uh, a president of yours would lose an election and there's that sort of transition period before the next uh, president comes the, in the lame exactly duck the session so yeah. to speak okay now you mentioned jeremy corbyn who to me was a very frightening figure leading the labor party he's no longer the labor leader lots of scandals and concerns uh swirling around anti-semitism uh, we've talked about that before on the show he's been replaced now uh, by a guy called Starmer or something like that. Is that right? That's right. Sir Keir Starmer, probably the most boring man in politics. He was described (laughs) by Boris Johnson as a plastic bollard, Uh, very nondescript, very, very boring. But that's his political pitch. And it's a similar pitch to the one that Biden presented. It's a similar pitch to the one that a guy called Albanese down in Australia presented Mm -hmm. in the last election, Mm -hmm. uh, where he defeated the conservative Scott Morrison in Australia. Keir Starmer is trying to be the boring Mr. Sensible, who will be the guy that puts the country on the straight and narrow against what is perceived to be a more messy Boris Johnson administration that has been his pitch for the last couple of years and it's interesting at the moment he leads in the polls now that's to be expected perhaps when would the next next, election the next election is at least two years away it could be at most two years and two months away but uh, yes we are very much mid-term so perhaps we would expect the labor party to be ahead of the conservatives right now well they're in the last few weeks chaos in the last few weeks the labor party has really led a considerable lead mainly because the tory party are tearing chunks out of each other right rishi soon is saying that Liz Truss's economic policies would drive millions of people into poverty. That's the kind and he of wouldn't serve if she in. wins. He wouldn't serve in her that's government. The, that's the heavy hint he has given over the course of this campaign. Huh. It's a very bitter fight between different wings of the Conservative Party. And if that family comes back together in men's fences, then you know, see how the political environment looks a year from now plus, and things could change very dramatically. Things could change very quickly. One thing, one reason why is because. Uh, Keir Starmer has tried to be Mr. Honest, Mr. Boring. But to some extent, Liz Truss is not the same person as Boris Johnson. She's less flashy. She's less of a showman. She is, frankly maybe a little bit more boring. She calls herself a straight-talking Yorkshire woman. And that means that she has put her entire pitch on trust, on honesty, and on delivery. And that's a harder contrast for Keir Starmer mm. to, uh, to, to, to go against, really, because Keir Starmer being Mr. Sensible against the bluster and the bullshiness of Boris, everyone knows the sort of character yeah. that Boris is. Uh, it's easy to be Mr. Straight Man against that. When you're dealing with an entirely different prospectus, perhaps a more ideological 
prospectus because one of the big criticisms of Boris is he didn't really believe anything. He really wanted to be prime minister to do what not many people became that sure. There was a sense of drift uh, within his administration that they weren't that they weren't using the huge majority that he won. He won the biggest majority for any Conservative prime minister since Margaret Thatcher. Big stonking majority. A stonking majority, yeah. as uh, as I once described it on the television, and, that, and then a few newspapers followed up with that description. The and next Boris used it. Weeks. Boris himself. Uh, used Boris it then, then, yeah, I. I I, I feel like I might have influenced that. There was one other phrase that I once used when I was writing for an online website, which was uh, Captain Hindsight. Now, this was describing the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, when he kept saying during the COVID pandemic, oh, you should have done this, you should have done this. But he didn't say it at the time. Captain Hindsight was then a phrase that the prime minister took on. So, so I, I like to think that I've delivered some things to the British political lexicon. I like it. I think that's at least plausible. Starmer could be quite boring and plastic. I have barely heard of him, which is probably part of his plan, right? Mm. He's just sort of like off there in the background. He is less uh, sort of aggressively frightening to me than Jeremy Corbyn. He just seems like someone I would mostly disagree with on everything as opposed to someone who is deeply, I think, anti-West and, and other things. Mm. But I, we can have this conversation perhaps next time. I'm here in London. We'll be closer to a general election. In the last little bit that we have together, you touched on it just a, a brief moment there, but what would you describe Boris's legacy as, looking back? The biggest legacy that Boris Johnson had was defeating Jeremy Corbyn and fundamentally changing the Labour Party. When Boris became Prime Minister, the Tories were very behind in the polls. And in the space of a few months, he turned that around and won an enormous general election victory. Now, that defeated Jeremy Corbyn and changed the Labour Party from the radical socialist party that it was to a mere sort of social democrat party. Still on the left, but not the extreme left. That was one big legacy. A second one, of course, Brexit got done. Yes. Brexit was a mess. No one uh, knew which direction it was going, whether it would be reversed, what would happen. There was a chaotic parliament under Theresa May. Boris won that big majority and he delivered Brexit. The UK has now left the European Union. As a result of that, the UK is now uh, negotiating a free trade deal with India. We've got free trade deals with uh, Australia now. Hopefully one day we'll get one with you guys too. That's a yes, freedom please. we can now have outside the EU. And finally, support for Ukraine. That was one thing that he would be massively remembered for. The UK was the first country in Europe to supply weapons. We've been very, very close to Ukraine. Boris and Zelensky have a very close personal relationship. Yeah, no, it's, it's be been remembered. impressive. That piece in particular. Tom Harwood, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show from London. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, it is primary day again in New York and Florida this time. A couple interesting races to keep an eye on this evening. Down in Florida, the big one is the gubernatorial Democratic side of things. Of course, we know that Ron DeSantis is going to be the Republican nominee unopposed. He is strongly favored to win re-election. But his challenger has not been determined. That will be settled this evening. It'll either be the agriculture commissioner, the only statewide elected Democrats, Nikki Freed, who's kind of really gone off the deep end, doesn't seem to do anything related to her day job. She's been this DeSantis 
resistance online person for a couple of years. We'll see if that works out for her. The other option is Charlie Crist, who has been a member of every political party imaginable. He was a former Republican governor. Then he was an independent. Now he's a member of Congress who's a Democrat. And it looked like he was going to get gerrymandered out of his seat. So now he wants to be governor again, the old job back, this time with the opposite party where he now supports everything he supposedly used to oppose and vice versa because he believes nothing. Most of the polls have him slightly ahead of her. A few numbers I've seen had her surging, so I guess we'll find out tonight. And Team DeSantis will be sitting there with $100 million plus waiting uh, to go full bore against whoever emerges from that race. Of course, there are some congressional uh, you know, primaries and interesting stuff down there in Florida as well tonight. And then in New York, a lot of the attention will be on sort of left versus left primary fights on the Democratic side. In addition to that, there is a special election to fill a vacant seat currently held by a Democrat in upstate New York. It's been one of these very swingy seats back and forth that voted for Barack Obama, that district, then it voted for Donald Trump, then it voted for Joe Biden. So really the definition of a swing district, it is Democrat held right now. A lot of money and attention has been poured into this special election, and the individual who wins tonight will hold the seat until November and beyond. There'll be, of course, another election. But people are wondering, is this perhaps an example where the Republicans can win back a seat? And if the Republicans pick this seat off tonight, you'll see, I think, much more of an emergence again of this idea that, okay, a red wave is upon us. If the Democrats, though, can fight off the challenge and hang on to this one, and in some ways the district might be well suited for that, I think they'll say, okay, we do have some momentum here. This red wave might be exaggerated or diminishing, and I think they would get a shot in the arm. So it'll be an interesting race to watch tonight. I'm sure people will massively overinterpret the results of a single special election. I saw one poll out today that had the Republican ahead by eight points, which would be an outstanding result for the Republicans. I'm very skeptical of that, but I guess we'll see. And then all the pundits will do their thing tomorrow. But just a couple things to keep an eye on tonight down in the Sunshine State and up in the Empire State on yet another primary night in the USA. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. We are going to turn our attention to the student loan, quote unquote, forgiveness scheme that President Biden reportedly is going to roll out tomorrow. We will get some commentary and analysis on that that you need to hear. It's next. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show welcome to a brand new hour here on the guy benson show i'm guy benson your host our website is GuyBensonShow.com. podcast is free every single day Follow us on social media at guy benson show twitter and instagram for some bonus content as well I am coming your way from the U.K., the London Bureau for Fox News. They've been hosting me yesterday and today. Very grateful for their hospitality, for them accommodating me as I'm over here for a couple days and then heading on vacation tomorrow, which I'm pretty stoked about. Details coming next in the happy hour, so please stay tuned for that. Joining us now is Mark Goldwine. He is the senior vice president and senior policy director for the Committee for a Responsible Budget. And Mark, first time on the show, we're glad you're here. 
Well, thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about this rumored plan that the White House is starting to tell some allies they are thinking about implementing, which would be the president unilaterally coming out and forgiving, quote unquote, $10,000 worth of student debt for some people who owe that debt. Not everyone. There are a few different limitations that they are reportedly planning to put on this giveaway. But nevertheless, it's something that they are planning, allegedly, reportedly, to do in the next couple of days, potentially. And you have been speaking out pretty forcefully against this idea. And just so our audience knows, you and I, I'm sure, have a number of policy disagreements. We don't agree, for example, on the Inflation Reduction Act. You were a supporter of that bill. I very much was not. But on this point, we do agree. And I was really intrigued by your analysis when I saw a tweet that you sent in response to a challenge that came from a woman named Nina Turner, who's an activist on the left. She's a former Ohio state senator. She's run for Congress unsuccessfully a few times. She's sort of a pundit out there as well. And about a week and a half ago, she tweeted this, quote, I still haven't heard a reason against student debt cancellation that isn't rooted in cruelty. And you responded in very pithy ways. You have to be on Twitter with eight bullet points refuting sort of the premise that she offered there. And I was hoping we could walk through some of them and sink our teeth into this from a policy perspective. So your first one is you make the point, and it's an important one, this would be a regressive move. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is 87% of Americans don't have student debt. And that includes the vast majority of people that are in the bottom half of the income spectrum. Because if you're low income, it's, it's more likely you didn't go to college. And so this is a, a cancellation that mainly benefits people with law degrees, medical degrees, master's degrees, um, fancy undergraduate degrees. Yes, it does benefit some lower income college graduates and people that didn't graduate. But mostly it goes to people in the top half, top quarter of the income spectrum. There's no question about that. And that sort of flows into the second point that you make, which is this is expensive. And we can get to maybe the inflation side of it in a moment, but we just saw a multi-hundreds of billions of dollar bill signed into law. This would be hundreds of billions more, what this little, uh, not so little chunk of change would amount to. Put that in perspective a little bit, the, the price tag here of what they're at least thinking about doing. You know, one reason that I like the Inflation Reduction Act is it would actually reduce deficits by about $300 billion. Now, that's not massive, but it's actually the biggest deficit reduction since 2012. This would completely wipe that away. Um, that, depending on the details, that cancellation is probably going to cost something like $250, $300 billion. And so all that hard work to get that $300 billion of deficit reduction up in smoke by a single presidential action. Which then brings us to inflation which is unavoidable. We're in a period of very difficult, painful, biting inflation, right around 40-year highs. And this would be just yet another super expensive thing that the government would be trying to do. I've seen Larry Summers, who was warning about inflation long ago, and he was poo-pooed and dismissed from the crowd that was saying, oh, it's not going to happen. And then those same people became the, oh, it's just transitory people. And now I would imagine they will again be dismissing concerns about the inflationary impact of a policy like this. But he again is making the case pretty vociferously that this would be an inflationary step. You obviously agree with that. 
aside from just the obvious, it's even more money being thrown into this, you know, overheated economy. Just explain some of your thought process there and your analysis that this would be inflationary at a point where that is not what anyone needs. There's no question it's going to add to inflation. Um, The original reason we stopped student debt payments back in 2020 was because the economy was in chaos and we wanted to support households so they could keep spending. That spending was helpful in 2020. It's the same spending that's actually going to worsen inflation today. And it's going to be sort of inflationary in three ways. First of all, um, if people are not paying back money into their paying back their debt, they're instead going to spend it elsewhere in the economy. And the economy is already oversaturated with spending. Second of all, if people know they have $10,000 of future debt canceled, um, we have very good economic literature that says they're going to spend some of that $10,000 today. They may be more likely to go buy a car or to uh, you know, otherwise buy one-time purchases because they feel $10,000 richer. And then the third is, especially if the president does this by executive order, colleges and students are going to expect, start expecting future debt cancellation, and that's going to drive up tuition costs. Right. That that was the next point that you have listed in the tweet. And I think this is maybe an underrated point that people are overlooking because everyone complains about the cost of going to college and these postgraduate degrees. It's just skyrocketed like totally beyond any sort of, you know, uh, normal inflation rate. It's just been a huge swelling of this bubble. And if it then becomes an expectation, which I think would be human nature, where colleges and universities would say, okay, well, we have a lot of this already subsidized by the government. Now they've done one round of debt cancellation. They'll probably do more of it in the future. That's just like an open invitation to jack up the prices even more because there's like this taxpayer federal backstop, at least in the back of their mind. That seems like it would do exactly the opposite of what we should be thinking about, which is how to make all of this more affordable and less insanely expensive. This would make things worse. Yes. That's exactly right. So I used to describe this canceling debt as a Band-Aid solution because if we cancel $10,000 of debt, balances are going to be right back to where they were in four years. But maybe the better metaphor is it's an effective Band-Aid because it's actually going to make the underlying disease worse, especially if we do this by executive order. People are going to expect every four or eight or 12 years a new president is going to come in and cancel $10,000 more of debt, maybe even more. And that's going to cause both tuition to rise faster and colleges to offer more low-value degrees, because maybe they're not worth it for $30,000, but if people think they might be only costing $20,000, they seem like they're worth it. Now, you've sort of touched on this already, but the incentive structure in these institutions of higher learning would also be perverse and perverted further because you would have like, you know, master's programs and, and schools saying, let's just, you know, market a bunch of other you're calling them bogus degree programs, whether you want to use that word bogus or not. I think you'd have a lot more people having their entire sort of risk benefit calculus thrown into chaos over this. And they might be willing to take fundamentally bad risks and make bad decisions for themselves because they're counting on this kind of policy, helping them in the near term and perhaps helping them again in the future. So some of these other programs that are highly suspect to begin with in terms of their value, they would uh, get a shot in the arm, if not proliferate, seems to be the concern here. expect more of them. And look, it's, it's, it's going to be both the bogus degrees and the degrees that are, are real degrees, but they're just not worth it for most people, right? You can, you can think, I'm not going to pick on any major, but you can think of the majors that aren't usually worth it. They seem like they become a little bit more worth it if you think they're going to be $10,000 cheaper in the future. So I expect 
people both entering more degrees that aren't really worth it and these bogus degrees from these for-profit colleges that are really just going to sort of take that subsidy straight from the government and put it to line their pocket. So a few of your remaining points from this tweet rebutting Nina Turner, I think, go into the same bucket or the same category, which is fairness. You say this move would be totally unfair. You note correctly that it would disproportionately benefit MDs and JDs who are making six figures. And once again, to underscore this, 87 percent of the population who are disproportionately less well off have no student debt. And they're being asked or in this case would be forced to finance this giveaway to richer people with a higher likelihood of lifetime earnings. I mean, you think about people who've never gone to college which is most of the country, by the way, uh, you think about people who may have had an opportunity to go to a more expensive school but couldn't afford it, so made the correct, righteous, responsible decision to go somewhere more affordable, trading some of their own personal desires for you know, doing the right thing. There's a, there's a separate category of, of those folks as well. And then there's also people, and I know a number of them in my life, who have worked diligently and very hard for many years siphoning off a bit of every paycheck to go repay loans that they took out with their eyes open, which is the case. People sign contracts and they didn't get any sort of benefit like this. They're not going to see some sort of you know retroactive $10,000 credit from the government. And I think among those groups, Mark, there would be a huge amount of resentment saying, why does this little narrow window of people disproportionately better off? Why do we all who did the right thing or have, you know, no reason to be paying for any of this. Why are we footing the bill for them? I understand that they maybe feel like they could be buying off some votes by doing this. But I wonder on the political side of it, I mean, isn't there uh, like a, a flip side with a much larger maybe downside of people who would be very angry about this from the fairness perspective? Yeah, I, I try not to prognosticate too much on the politics, but on the fairness, it's just unfair from any angle. I think most of us were raised to understand that when you take out debt, when you take out debt for a useful cause, there's an expectation that you work to pay it back. And, you know, it doesn't always work out. Sometimes you end up in a bad position and you can't, but that should be the goal. And the idea that all of a sudden we're going to say this one type of debt, you don't have to pay back. You still got to pay your mortgage. You still got to pay your credit card bill. Um, you still have to pay your car loan, but you don't have to pay back the student debt, even though it's dramatically increasing earning power. It's just fundamentally unfair at the individual level, not to mention the fact that it's basically a transfer from the 87 percent of people with no college debt who are going to face higher inflation that are going to be burdens with more federal debt to the 13 percent of people with college debt, many of them with advanced degrees and very high earning potential. It's just unfair from every from every angle. Um, does yep. that mean it's going to lose votes or win votes? I, I don't know, but I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's not making me happy as a voter. And coming full circle, you're once again making the point about how regressive this would be. Last question, and you might not be able to weigh in on this either because you're sort of shying away from the politics of it. Maybe you will shy away from the law as well because you're coming at this from a you know budgetary standpoint, an economic standpoint. But you've a few different times mentioned if he does this, Biden does this by executive order, then X, Y and Z. I have read numerous analyses that this would be illegal. Like he can't do this by himself. He cannot put this into an executive order and just, uh, you know, wave his wand and make this go away. Uh, this ten thousand dollar, you know, sort of forgiveness thing. He can't do that uh, from a legal perspective. I would imagine this would probably be snarled up in the courts for a long time, and I think he would lose. The White House has basically admitted it's illegal, but I guess maybe it's 
some electoral decision here where they're going to try anyway and, and force someone else to stop them. Have you read anything on the legal aspect of this that convinces you that this might not even ultimately get implemented once it is, you know, put up to judicial scrutiny? Right. So here's what I'll say as a non-lawyer. This is certainly abuse, an abuse of the president's authority. Um, I'm not sure if it's technically illegal or not, but it's clearly not what the law was intended for. The law is intended to give the president authority to make um, adjustments to the loan program in cases where someone has been defrauded, in cases where they think that sort of negotiating is going to be better for the federal government because someone's not going to pay back anyway. It's given the president authority to make some adjustments in a narrow sense. It was never intended to have a basically indefinite freeze on payments or to cancel $10,000 per person of debt regardless. And so it's certainly abuse, an abuse of power, an abuse of yeah. his authority. Whether it's illegal, I think the courts will decide. One theory I've heard is that it may both technically be illegal, but nobody has standing to sue, in which case, even though it's illegal, it may still happen. But I don't think we're going to know that for some, for some time. And that is a risk to people that get their $10,000 forgiven because there's some chance the court will reverse that and they'll be added right back to their balances. Mm. So, I mean, that's just a whole separate can of worms related to all of this. And whether it's legal technically or not, to me, it seems pretty plainly illegal. And if we want to do this as a country, I think it's a very bad policy. At least have the legislative branch make the bad decision where the authority lies with them. For the president to come out and do this on his own, I think at the very least, I will agree with you on this. It is an abuse, an extreme abuse of his power, and there would be a big fight over it setting aside all of the economic downsides that we've just run through with Mark Goldwine. He is the senior vice president and senior policy director at the Committee for a Responsible Budget. Mark, I appreciate your time and insights today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And The Guy Benson Show continues after this short break. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thanks for listening. So this came across my feed earlier today, and it's cringy. There's a YouTuber named James Klug who went out to Southern California, and he went up to Gen Zers, young people on the street, sort of a man-on-the-street thing, and asked them some basic questions about an array of topics. And at least the way the whole thing was stitched together and edited, the results were an embarrassment. Here's a taste. Cut 12. How many stars are on the United States flag? 103. 103? Yeah. Um, 32. What ocean is on the east side of the United States? What ocean? Google it. (laughs) You guys know this. I know this. I don't know this. What country is the Queen of England from? Not a politics guy. I don't know. I really don't know. Just take a guess. Like, what country is the Queen of England from? Europe, I don't know. Ooh, okay. It went on, cut 13. What's the capital of the United States? Um, the, um, there's a capital? What? Yes. Let's see. Take a guess. Um, uh, probably California. Yeah, that's right. It is? No. I don't even want to think because I don't want to sound dead. Well, just, the, there's no capital of the yeah, United literally. States. Yeah, literally. Is there no capital? Correct. Was that right? <laughs> no. Oh, you guys are UCLA students? We literally students? go to UCLA. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Who was the first president of the United States? Abraham Lincoln. Ugh. So we had a couple people there thinking that there was no capital of the United States. There's no capital city. 
and two of them are active students at UCLA. Certainly hope that we're not going to all pay for them to get their student debts forgiven. I mean, what are they teaching? Well, here's what everyone could answer, apparently. Cut 14. Can you name the uh, three Kardashian sisters? Uh, Kim, Courtney, and Chloe. What are the three Kardashian sisters' names? Courtney, Kim, and Chloe. Chloe, Kim, Courtney, and Courtney. Well, they nailed that part. And I'm not going to just dump on Gen Z, although that's fun. Sort of like a pastime right now. Jay Leno used to do this decades ago before these kids were born with jaywalking. There's been a lot of civic illiteracy in the country for a long time. I do fear it's getting worse. We do have a civics problem in this country. And it seems to me like a lot of the activists and leaders and bureaucrats in the education space are much more focused on woke ideology and identity and political correctness than actually filling kids' brains with important basic information to be a functioning society. I think there's something to be said for just like memorization and drilling people with facts and testing them. And, you know, everyone has an iPhone, but people don't know things. Now I just sound like a cranky old man. (laughs) Although I guess listening to what we just heard, it might make you a little concerned, a little alarmed, slightly cranky. But we'll take a break. I'll kick the funk during that break. Coming back with Jessica Tarloff next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are halfway through today's Guy Benson show. Thank you so much for being here each and every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time and around the clock around the world for free on our podcast on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Broadcasting today from the Fox London Bureau in the U.K. And with us now is Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, Head of Research at Bustle, also Chief Romance and Baby Correspondent here at The Guy Benson Show. And also, she's kind of, sort of, one of our U.K. experts, because if I recall correctly, Jessica, you lived and worked over here. And I think you might have even worked at one point for Boris Johnson. Is that right? It is right. It was pre-Brexit. I want everyone to know that. It was his second mayoral campaign. I worked on his social media and research team, um, which was a ton of fun. Um, And I really enjoyed it. And we won, which was good, too. How long were you here? Six years. So um, as your listeners may or may not know, I'm incredibly overeducated and was in grad school for five and change years. So I did a couple master's degrees and my PhD there at the London School of Economics, and then I worked on the campaign, and then I came home just before Obama's re-election. So are you having a, a good time? Oh, fabulous time. And I was on the show yesterday recounting my sort of last-minute decision to go see Coldplay at Wembley oh, yeah. on Saturday I night. I posted about that because Wembley is one of the greatest venues. It was it was pretty cool, and it's neat to be here. And we were just talking British politics in the last hour. And just one last question before we move on from U.K. stuff. You said that it was pre-Brexit, so you were working for Boris. He won. He was mayor of London at the time. I know you and I have spoken on the air and off the air about the state of British politics and how it's really quite different in a lot of ways from U.S. politics. Obviously, back home, you are a Democrat. Would you be aligned with labor if you were living here, or would you be like a borderline Tory, like, I, I'm just interested in yeah, how you think through that. It's a 
tough one because as to the reason that I was working for Boris Johnson, I mean, my politics are more traditionally aligned with labor, though over there, social issues aren't a big deal, right? Everyone is pro-choice. Um, the taxation stuff is a bit different, but kind of the, the liberties thing is, is around the same thing. They don't have gun problems, et cetera. Um, but the Labor Party has had huge anti-Semitism problems, which is why I was working for Boris Johnson's campaign. He was running against a politician named Ken Livingston, who had been the mayor of London before Boris beat him. So he was trying to get the seat back. And he's a Jeremy Corbyn acolyte, right? They're part of the same yep. crew. And um, yep. as you know, Jeremy Corbyn, who was the head of labor, got ousted for anti-Semitism. So it's really put a lot of Jewish liberals in a tough spot in um, in the U.K., uh, as to who to support. And a lot of them have gone to the conservative party because of that. Um, it's more difficult for people who are with labor for issues like union support, for instance. Um, so I think I would be like conservative labor or Tory light, probably more <laughs> conservative labor now that the anti-Semitism has kind of been stamped out more or less. Um, but it's obviously even still a problem with the Democratic Party, the, you know, the far left of the party here. Um, so it's just a big, you know, worldwide problem that I wish we would talk a lot more about. So. Oh, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to sound off on that. I know that was part of your calculus in backing Boris the way that you did for that for that position in that election. And that's one of the reasons why we were actually talking about it on the show call earlier planning. And I did not know, like, which way you would vote here, you know, for the Tories or for Labor, even though there's no ambiguity about which way you vote back home. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Something else that I wanted to ask you, we posted on our social media that you were going to be on the show today. And I heard from a listener who just very politely sort of curiously wondered, how is she liking the five? Um, And I said, you know, we haven't really hung out that much since you took over sort of that rotating liberal seat. Obviously, you're the lib, so you need to be owned uh, on a regular basis. Uh, But you, you know, you're scrappy and you hold your own as well. How are you enjoying the experience? I'm having a great time. And thank you for the thoughtful question from the listener that didn't involve the word libtard, I assume. Um, It's been great. I think that you know, there's so much that's magical about the five in terms of the chemistry and how it really mimics the real world, right? Like how you would have conversations with friends with diverse points of view, what, you know, family holidays could look like. Um, and everyone's personality is such a featured part of the show. Um, and it's been great to share the seat with Harold Ford Jr. and Geraldo, who both great people have, you know, I don't not different politics than me, but probably a little bit more conservative than I am. Um, so I've it's weird for someone, you know, I've always been a more conservative Democrat and then to be the most liberal Democrat, probably except on issues of immigration, maybe for Geraldo um, on the panel. But I've I've had a blast. Um, it's a great show. It's run so well um, by Megan Albano. And um, I feel really grateful and lucky to be part of it. Not to make you give away any state secrets here, but how do you decide when to really engage on something? Because back before I was at Fox, I would do a little bit of CNN and much more MSNBC and often outnumbered. And, you know, the audience didn't like me and they would sort of treat me as kind of the, you know, the punching bag sometimes. And I was like, all right, I'm going to make my points. I'm going to modulate a certain way. And there are sometimes it's worth engaging and worth going there and sometimes sort of like, you know, let it slide. How do you is it sort of just like a gut instinct 
thing at this point where you figure out when you're going to want to like really put up a fight and when it's not worth it and when it would sort of benefit the show versus maybe hurt the flow? Is it something that you think through or is it more instinctual? I think the fact that I just said I think means it's probably something that I think through. Um, Some things are just like you got to respond. Right, like it hits you at the core of what matters to you. And on hot-button issues, that's usually what happens, right? Like I was on the day the Dobbs decision came down. I responded to everything that I wanted to, right? I didn't hold back saying like, oh, you know, I don't want to interrupt this person or, you know, stuff like that. Um, But in general, I think, and this comes from years of being somewhere, and it's a big advantage of being part of a community of people like we are at this point, um, that you can do a lot as well with body language and gestures, right? Maybe just like dropping a couple words in. I tend to like run out the clock at the end, you know, kind of filibuster then to make <laughs> sure that people can't interrupt me. You know, you see the red light go on and then I'm like, oh, and by the way, like the Inflation Reduction Act will do good things. Anyway, it's time for one more thing. And you just kind of let go quickly. Uh, um, so so maybe so maybe I need to say we need to abolish the filibuster on the show, but only for you. <laughs> right, Dana can yeah. filibuster all she wants, as far as I'm concerned. Dana never a filibuster. She's just she's the most polite and kind about it. Jesse, though, <laughs> that is a filibuster. Um, so I think you just go with the mood of it. And you also have to be conscious, or I'm very conscious of, you know, if you want to make the most impact, you don't want to offend the viewership over and over and over again, right? Like I'm like aware of what majority of the people who are watching. Yeah, pick, pick your think, spots. Exactly. Pick your spots. Um, but when you do pick them, go for it with gusto. Like you can't be mealy mouthed about it. I don't I don't think so. So obviously uh, you're wrong about most things, including, as you just mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, we're going to definitely disagree on that one. I wonder if we might agree on this one, though. We were just chatting with Mark Goldwine, his first time on the show from the Committee for a Responsible Budget. And he was in favor of the Inflation Reduction Act. He and I disagree on that. And I think some of what he's talking about, that it will reduce deficits, I think that's sort of uh, fanciful and unrealistic thinking. That being said, here is someone who is willing to support the administration on that point. He is guns blazing against this unilateral rumored $10,000 forgiveness, quote unquote, cancellation of some student debt for certain borrowers. I think it's illegal. I think it's a huge abuse of power. I also think economically it is calamitous and would really inflame a lot of the problems that we already have and would also be hugely regressive and all these other things. But the sort of hardcore element of your party is clamoring for not just this, but a lot more of this. They want them to go much farther than this bad idea. Where do you land on this controversy? So I have a question first for you, which is how is it illegal? Because it seems, and I've read that even the White House lawyers have said he doesn't have the authority to do this on his own because this is a power of the purse strings thing and this is something that would require congressional action and he's going to try to circumvent that and just do it and just sort of you know dare the courts to do something which they did by the way on a similar issue on i think uh you know eviction the eviction moratorium where it wormed its way through the courts and they finally got smacked down but 
there's a lot of legal experts that I've read who say that for Biden to do this, it would be a violation of the law, or as Mr. Goldwise mentioned earlier in the hour, at the very least, an abuse of presidential power. Got it. Okay. All right. So I, I hadn't considered – I had considered abuse of presidential power. I had not considered – actually being illegal. So I tend to think that this is not a good idea, and it's particularly not a good idea at this very you know, tenuous inflation moment. And Larry Summers, um, who was a critic of the Build Back Better plan, then was on board and helped convince Joe Manchin of, uh, to support the Inflation Reduction Act, spoken out about how you just don't do this at this particular moment and that the money would actually be better spent going to people who didn't go to college. There's a lot of data that the folks who would be most benefited from this are people who are better off. And I know that this is controlled for people earning under $125,000, but that's still well above the average income in this country, which covers around $50,000. So I tend to not like it. I think that what you could do is maybe force um, banks or the government, wherever people have taken other loans from, to adjust interest rates, perhaps. Um, but a lot of people that are going to be helped do not have the levels of debt that we hear, we think of when we think that people are being crushed by this debt. Like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez did a whole thing about how she had $17,000 in debt. I think it was seventeen. Right. And it's like, or at least okay, in that ballpark. Well, you have a Tesla also. So just, you know, and you earn $174,000. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's that's the like, sort of the, the moral hazard of all of this, right? I mean, just setting the precedent, I think, is just an awful one. Even if you didn't have all the problems of fairness and regression and inflation and all of it and massive price tag, just on principle, where people sign up and they sign on the dotted line, they say, I'm going to borrow this amount of money and the Terms are this, and I have to pay it back down the line. And then to somehow say, well, they're victims and they don't have to do that when so many people have worked extremely hard to do precisely that for years. Uh, and, and they're sitting here like, well, wh- well, what about me? I did the right thing, and now I'm being punished for it. And a bunch of, you know, most Americans didn't go to college. They're sitting there saying, I didn't go to college at all, and now our tax dollars are being used to kind of partially bail out these people who signed a pledge and signed a contract. It just seems on that level alone, deeply objectionable. Well, I think that, you know, the the problem when you are the fundamental argument is that there are certain things that are human rights. Right. This is what the last the far left argues. And included that is, you know, right to a good education, right to good health care, et cetera. And if you want to get on board with that. And I'm generally on board with elite. You know, I want a public option. I don't want, you know, a complete private uh, public publicization. What's the, how would you say that? Single I, I payer. Want NHS as the only. Option. Yeah, they're having real problems here. Huge problems. And yep. I mean, I went to the NHS a few times when I was in town, but I had a breast cancer scare and I ran straight to Harley Street, which is where the private doctors are, and used my private insurance because I wasn't going to be able to be seen for two months. That's a problem. Yep. That but, is a problem. It was a problem, but it wasn't a problem, and I didn't have cancer, which was good. Um, Very good. But, yeah, excellent. Um, you, When you push things too far, people stop liking or even giving you a nod to the things that seem, you know, more normal, right? Like, we all have health care issues. That's something you can have a conversation about. We all want to go to school, but there's this overarching feeling i feel like 
mostly in the Democratic Party, or I'd say almost completely, that like everybody needs to go to four-year college and get a liberal arts degree. That's absolutely not the case. And people aren't doing that, and that's forgotten. And one thing I can't get an answer to, and maybe you know, is this forgiveness just for government owed money, like for public institutions, or can this money be used if you went to a private institution? Mm, I don't know. I thought it was for if you fit within certain parameters for like any student debt that you had. I think I mean, regardless at this point, you're sort of like focusing on a couple minor details where I just am fundamentally opposed full stop to the entire enterprise. And when we get more details, I will learn them and shred them. I think it's awful. And the reports emerging earlier today are that this is going to arrive and drop tomorrow. So we will know soon enough, unfortunately, it seems. Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle. Jesse, always good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. Enjoy the rest of your trip. Thank you very much. And we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show, and now a dispatch from the land of government excess, California. Headline from Axios, high-speed rail to San Francisco gets environmental clearance. The California High-Speed Rail Authority Board last week approved the final environmental impact report for the bullet train's proposed route between San Jose and San Francisco. Thursday's vote means that 420 miles of the train's 500-mile route from SF to L.A. have cleared environmental hurdles, allowing rail officials to begin advanced design work. Now, what's interesting about this is some of the key cogs of this whole thing working, little extra train routes from major cities to these hubs, have not been funded at all. They have no idea how they're going to pay for them. They're like $25 billion shy of being able to do those things. So right now it would just be a train line between places where a lot of people don't actually live, and it just wouldn't actually work. And what's totally wild about this is that voters in California approved this overall project back in 2008. They were told at the time it would be $10 billion to build a bullet train that could transport people between San Francisco and Los Angeles in less than three hours. $10 billion, they said the trains would start running in 2020, and the entire price tag start to finish would be $33 billion. Well, here we are. It's still not running. 2029 might be the earliest year that the trains can leave the Central Valley, and estimated costs are already at least $105 billion. So they are a decade overdue, and they've tripled the budget already, and they're not even close to getting this thing done. And they're finally getting some of the final environmental studies done now. It's just wild. This is a microcosm of the insanity that is California. And not surprising, therefore, that a lot of people are leaving the state. You can't really do anything there. It's hobbled in regulatory excess and this kind of big government mentality. This story, I mean, it's, it's just sort of like a punchline on the right. But it's not a punchline at all to California voters and California taxpayers. Now, to some extent, they asked for this. They voted for this back in 2008. There are kids currently in high school who were not alive when this thing got approved. And they'll be, what, out of college by the time it actually starts. If then. (laughs) And they'll be paying for it through their taxes forever and ever. If it ever gets off the ground. Just an abject failure. And a cautionary tale. On the Guy Benson Show, final hour coming up. 
It's Tuesdays with Cat. Straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. The Happy Hour is here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. From London, England, I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for listening. Do appreciate it every day between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Also around the clock for free on our podcast at the conclusion of the program about an hour from now. GuyBensonShow.com. All the details right there. Also FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social, Twitter and Instagram at Guy Benson Show. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is... Delicious and terrific and not available here in the U.K., so I'm missing that a bit. But you can have it back home. Find out where it's sold near you as they expand. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Well, I'm here in London. The show is based in D.C. And joining us now from New York and HQ of Fox News Worldwide is our friend and colleague, Kat Timp, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld! Exclamation point. Also co-host of the Tyrus and Timp podcast at foxnewspodcast.com. And last night, she wasn't just on the panel for Gutfeld. She hosted the damn thing. Kat, congratulations. I know you've done it before, but it's a big job, and the reviews were good. Thank you so much. What does it take to prepare for that show? Because it's not really a plug-and-play show. That is a lot of moving parts. It's a difficult gig, I would imagine. There's the whole monologue at the beginning. Talk about that process. Yeah, I mean, I I started thinking about it over the weekend, obviously. Uh, I wrote the monologue myself, and I had the idea to go looking around for old clips from years ago of me and Greg arguing about, um, you know, federal law enforcement powers like NSA, snooping, that kind of thing, where I had a point of view that he argued with but now agrees with. So... I had the idea to include those things. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot. It's definitely a Wait, lot. Wait, hang on. So so did you, am I hearing correctly? Because I was not able to tune in because it was 4 a.m. here when the show aired. Well, that's but, not really an excuse. Well, there's no such thing as an internet, and there's no way for me to watch right, it Right, exactly. Like, so, there's internet. So it's on ignorance. my Twitter. But, but hang on. You use the opportunity of guest hosting Greg's show to basically – roast him and be like, here are the things I've been right about all along. I mean, and not now he basically. Finally agrees with me. I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, not basically. I did do that. Absolutely. I, I did two clips from the past of me being right. And I did make a comment about how much, how amazing it is that I, I've gotten better looking as I've gotten older. <laughs> oh, that's, if you <laughs> do than, say so Other yourself. than that, there was very little bragging. Okay, well, yeah, aside, <laughs> aside from those things, aside from, what, four minutes out of the eight minutes were bragging <laughs> yeah. and the rest were jokes. More like two minutes, to, yeah. <laughs> and how was the crowd? How was the vibe? It was great. The vibe was great. Uh, everyone knew in advance that I would be hosting, so there were Tim fans in the audience. And one of the funniest things, I think, probably was, you know, Cam, my husband, was in the audience, and... As you know, I don't know if you know this or not, I don't know how closely you follow, but he used to do my hair in the pandemic, 
like he clipped my extensions in. Yes, I do remember. Yeah, that. and I we talked about it on Tyrus and Timf, and like I actually made up a song called Cami Salon that I would sing to him when he did my hair, <laughs> and people in the audience were apparently pointing to Cam. They were like, "Oh, it's Cami Salon." <laughs> I'm sure he loved it's that. It's so funny, right? Not Army Ranger, not West Point graduate. Uh, Cami's of uh, Cami Salon. Yeah, no, like he served the country served in a very country, elite unit. For West our freedom Point, in an elite unit. Yeah, like exactly. a really good lacrosse player. Yeah. Like the guy has done a lot in his life, and he is known to for the Cammy general Salon. public as Cami Salon. <laughs> yeah. That must be. I feel like this was just your opportunity to just emasculate some people last night on national television. Well, I didn't emasculate. I mean, I there was an entire block about like Dennis Rodman, and I talked a lot about how I've had a crush on him since I was five. And I ended it by saying, I, hey, Dennis, if you're watching, I may be married, but I'm not dead. And everyone just kept <laughs> looking at Cam. And, you know, he's, he's a good sport. Yeah, he just You have to be. I'm not, I, I, Dennis, I say this all the time. I'm not for the weak. Dennis Rodman famously was a Chicago Bull and a prolific rebounder. But if I'm not mistaken, was he not? On the Pistons, he was when I was like four or five years old. There you go. Mm -hmm. So that's like that's the childhood tie-in there. That was the childhood tie-in. And then when he married himself, I was like, that is so cool. Yeah, that that's like a you kind of move. It was amazing, right? Like, okay, girl who threw her own funeral and guy who marries himself. Are we not the perfect (laughs) match? Is you know. I want to ask one more question about Gutfeld. We mentioned it yesterday on the show with Joe Concha. A week or two back, you guys all week long beat Colbert. Yeah. Which is kind of like the last white whale. You're beating everyone else every night, and then Colbert sometimes it's sort of like neck and neck back and forth. Right. That's got to be a pretty cool feeling for what everyone else would try to pretend is the king of late night comedy. Right. Stephen Colbert, you know, beating him for an entire week running. I mean, that's not just a feather in your cap. It's got to be pretty satisfying, too. Yeah, especially since, uh, you know, as I talk about this all the time, the amount of resources that that show has, there's really no comparison given the amount of resources that we have. Our entire staff, including people on the show, Greg's assistant, it's smaller than his writing team. Oh, I think that's undoubtedly true. And they're sort of in denial that you guys even exist, let alone that you're winning, uh, which I think is just sort of a delicious thing. Not to mention, of course, we are in a, you know, we're on cable. Right, exactly. (laughs) They're on broadcast. Yes. They're in a lot more homes. You guys are in cable and you're still winning. So it's just like A plus and uh, very proud. And it's just cool as well to watch. And I would love to just sort of be in some of their meetings, like fly on the wall stuff yeah, when you I would guys too. come up. That would, I'm sure they have some very nasty things to say, but that would just be bitterness at this point. That's loser talk, basically. Yeah, like, sorry you concerned. lost to a show that shoots our sketches on iPhones. <laughs> <laughs> exactly you right. You know, because you've been in one. Oh, yeah, I've, I, I was like, I was expecting when Greg asked me to do the sketch for that one monologue, I was expecting... A camera crew. Um, yeah, like a crew and like some production value. And it was right. like one guy in an iPhone. I was like, oh, okay. And this is going to be in front of two million people later. They're like, yeah. I was like, all right, here we go. And of course, it was a tremendous hit. Many mm. people oh, are saying so good. So good. I want to talk now about a very special event that you and I are both attending together next week. I start my vacation tomorrow, Mm -hmm. but we will be then linking up for the birthday of a very dear friend of both of ours. 
How much are we allowed to let out of the bag on this? I mean, I, whatever you want to let out of the bag, it's your show, baby. Okay, I just don't. I don't want to get in trouble or you know get all the you know the paparazzi there. You know, for you mostly. Oh yeah, I'm, I am I'm really concerned famous. about. Yeah. I'm concerned. You know, you don't want sort of the uh, the, the Tim Grecian, the, yeah, the, the Greek paparazzi uh, serenading Cam with uh, Cami Salon, Salon, right in, yeah. in the islands. But so we're going to Greece, and it is the fiftieth birthday of. The woman who married both of us, which is how she likes to refer to it, uh, which is technically true in one sense. She officiated my wedding to Adam and your wedding to Cam, Mm -hmm. and she is one of the best people I've ever met. She's one of the best people, certainly, in the building at Fox. She's a total character. Her career has been absolutely amazing. She's a great mom. She's a loyal friend. I hope she hears all of this because I mean all of this. And when she was like, hey, I'm doing uh, a 50th, Initially, I was like, oh, in what, like two or three years, four years, I had maybe no six idea. years? And then she's like, no, like now. I yeah. said, you're turning 50? I know. I was alarmed by that as well. I, like, I, I mean, it can't be possible. I tell maybe her this she's all lying the time. about her age in the way that people normally don't lie about it. Oh, in the opposite way. <laughs> yeah, so people keep saying, yeah. wow, you look amazing. Yeah, she's actually yeah. 41. She's actually 41, but she's like, she's actually Whoa. 50. No, she looks fantastic, yeah. and I always just, like, in my mind, and I tell her this, I always think that we're the same age, that we're sort yeah. of, like, roughly the same age. And then that's not true. She's 13 years older than I am, and she had this incredible whole career and knows this whole side of American society and culture that, like, is more or less foreign to me. So she's just lived this incredibly rich life already, and she turns 50, and she's throwing herself this huge party at this villa, and she said, would you have any interest in coming? And the only correct answer to that question is yes. Like The answer I chose. <laughs> yes. I mean, you chose wisely. Yeah. Now, it also worked out well because I'm already going to be on this side of the ocean because mm-hmm. I was going to be in Ireland for a football game. I'll talk more Ugh. about that later in the home stretch. <laughs> what? Just Terrible use of time off. No, it's, a, it's fabulous. Ireland for a football game? All right, don't buddy. even judge me. I'll be I drinking do. too. I'll be sightseeing. It'll be fine. Okay. But then it's like an easy little hop, relatively speaking, I hope, <laughs> over to Greece. I am curious about this. Are you a nervous traveler, Kat Timpf? Yes. I'm a very nervous traveler. But traveling with Cami Salon helps me. Like, going through TSA, it, it just... I, I don't know. Okay, so first of all, I'm always afraid because I have ADD, ADHD, obviously. And, I, <laughs> like, I'm not scared of the actual being on the plane. I'm scared that I forget something while I'm packing or that I forget something at the airport at some point. Or, you know, and just TSA, it just freaks me out going through So there. hang on. So, and so I don't know a- why. You're a nervous flyer in general, not just internationally. Is it magnified when you're going long distances? Yeah, it's magnified when you're going to other countries where you don't have yeah. ri- like the same rights. <laughs> but the thing is, <laughs> in uh, an airport, you actually don't have any rights. Like the TSA, they just they just grab you. They'll just touch you wherever they want to touch you, and uh, you got to just take it. And I don't know, like, I, I'm offended by the TSA. I think I've been, you know, it needs to be abolished. It's needed to be abolished for a long time. That's my take. Um, but, I like, something about it, they're just, they're not nice a lot of the time. You know? Like, mm-hmm. I, like I remember we were f- flying one time, 
And they grabbed my bag for additional screening or whatever. And I was kind of like, oh, like, what is... And I fly a lot, so I'm not someone who's going to have, like, a big, you know, Costco lotion in my bag. Like, I know what can go in and what can't. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm just, you know, what's going on? I was like, kind of, I was so polite. I was smiling. I was like, well, you know, what happened? I want to know. And they were like, well, we're trying to figure that out now. And I was like, okay, well, I just would like to know for the future, because obviously I don't like it when this happens. She goes, nobody does now, do they? And I'm like, am I under <laughs> arrest? Like, w- w- like w- I'm a human being. Why are you talking to me that way? There is, I'm being I, there is no need for you to be talking to me that way. Because what it was is I had like a Misfits bottle opener on my wallet that they thought might be like a weapon, which, you know, no. So, it, you know, it, it is just you just get nervous and it's and it's I, I'm never flying with any contra like illegal contraband. But, mm. you know, rest assured, is that so rest assured those who do don't ever get caught anyway. Study after study shows that people, you know, when they do these drills and they they, they find like the lotions in the water bottles. So I will I, say the most delightful interaction and you don't really associate the TSA with delightful interactions very often, to your point. But the one time that I can really remember having a very funny interaction with a TSA agent, I was checking in or, like, you know, going through security at the first little stop where they check your ID mm-hmm. and, you know, take off your hat if you're a guy or whatever. And I'm standing there, and it's a younger guy, a black guy. And he's looking at me. He's looking at the ID. He's looking back and forth, and he looks a little bit suspicious. And I'm like, "What's going on?" And then he just goes, "Are you on the news?" Ah. Uh, and I was like, "Oh boy, uh, here we go." And I was like, uh, "Yes, sir." And I like must have looked a little bit flustered. And he winks at me. He goes, "Don't worry." And then he whispers. He goes, "We're on the same side." That's so funny. <laughs> so I have had. And so- through I went. I have had some positives. I, it's always positive when we fly with Carl because he's so cute that everybody loves him and he brightens everybody's day. Um, I remember Megan, Carl, by the way, is the dog, the dog. just for yeah. for people who don't follow every single detail of oh. of Cat's life. Most people Cam, Cam is the, is husband. the husband. Yes, so, and Carl is the dog. Okay, go on. I went Megan McCain's wedding years ago. I finally did it. I went to the wrong airport. I went to I went to uh, LaGuardia instead of JFK. So I was running pretty damn late. Oh, no. uh, but I was like very, I was telling everyone, I was like, I need to do like, I'm going to make this, blah, blah, blah. Like, blah, blah. I was freaking out. And this lady was like, she was like, brought me up to the front and I was cutting it close. And I was like, it was taking, I, I was trying to get all my stuff together. She was like, you got to run. And as I was running, she was yelling after me. She's going, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want it? And <laughs> like, like a coach. It, yeah. And, and like, it, it, exactly. Like I wasn't really a sports gal. But you I don't know, hear like the chariots life, of fire theme song is starting and to play. I actually did make the flight. Wait, but weren't you at the wrong airport, or is yeah. this where you had already oh, gotten I, I had to? Already, the... Then I went to the correct airport. I see. So you made it, and you got to the to the wedding. Mm-hmm, I sure did. Happily ever after. Okay, yeah. so th- so that worked out well. So they're uh, not follow all up... bad, but you know, it's just when when the when the agreement is. You can grab my crotch for no other reason except well. for I say so. That's never going to be a comfortable situation for me. Well, okay. On that note, let's take a very quick break. little time out here. Back with more with Cat Timpf on the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
Back on the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. My guest is Kat Timp in our New York studios. And Kat, I did want to follow up with one more question on the whole nervous flying thing. So if you're just like in a popping home to Michigan, for example, you get on the plane to New York, you're there in two hours. Greece is going to be a different story. It's, I don't know if you're flying nonstop to Athens or what your whole itinerary is, but you're going to be on a transatlantic flight for many hours. How do you handle the vape addiction situation? Because I don't believe they allow vapes on a plane. So I'm trying to quit, uh, but um, blanket. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. Okay. Because it is a won't, federal uh, crime, right? Um, I I think it probably is. So I don't. So want I'll you say to... what I do is I I don't vape. That's that's my official answer. You don't vape on the plane. You know you're not allowed to go to the lavatory, cat. Yeah, I know. Okay, all right. Just but, they have smoke I mean, detectors in there. There's no tampering. They always make that announcement. No tampering with the lavatory. Yeah, but I'm sorry if you tamper with a smoke detector because you're worried about water vape, like about vapor, and you turn like like. You know, you got bigger mm. problems. You're not I feel the like brightest, you got a little bit of a life hack here. Light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Smoke detector for smoke. When do you arrive and then when do you leave? And I'm asking you this not for the purposes of, like, entertaining the audience. I'm just genuinely curious oh, in terms of what your Saturday. plans. We, we, Gr- Greece specifically, we're going to hang around. We're going to bop around Europe for a few weeks. But we get in Saturday and we leave uh, Wednesday early morning. Okay, so we'll be there, God willing, Sunday until uh, roughly the same. So, okay, we'll have good overlap. Uh, Godspeed. Good luck in all of your flight endeavors and your non-vaping and all of that. You've got, I assume, the animals taken care of. Yes, we have mother-in-law with Carl. We have someone staying at our apartment for round-the-clock care of little cheese. For cheese. Okay, very good. (laughs) Uh, And... The reason that normally we do Fridays with Kat, but we're doing Tuesdays with Kat today because for me it feels like Friday because vacation starts tomorrow, including this very cool trip with some of my friends and colleagues, not the least of whom is Kat Timpf, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld, which she hosted last night. Also check out her podcast with Tyrus, Tyrus and Timpf, foxnewspodcast.com. Safe travels, Kat. We'll see you soon. See you soon. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. Back with more after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show from London. Thank you so much for listening. Earlier today in the program, we caught up with our friend here, Tom Harwood of GB News, giving us the lay of the land in British politics, including a big decision that the Conservative Party is currently weighing. Who will be the next prime minister? With Boris Johnson stepping down, there's a race on. It's coming to a conclusion. Tom's analysis sounded like this. Let's talk about today and the Conservative Party and the Tory leadership, which was thrown into chaos. Uh, Some of these political scandals over here. Boris Johnson, the prime minister, eventually uh, couldn't hang on any longer. He resigned. We talked about that on the show a little bit. Whenever there's a, a new PM coming in, it's significant from an American perspective because the U.K. is our most important ally. And when there's a change in leadership, you know, I think Americans should pay some attention. So. It's a bit Byzantine to a lot of Americans to figure out how your system works at times. There is not a general election happening where the party in power is changing. Boris has been basically thrown out by his own party. 
And so the Tories, the conservatives, are having a race now down to two people. The winner of that race will become the next prime minister until there's a general election. Is that roughly correct? That's right. In this country, we don't elect directly a prime minister, even though it might sound like it. Uh, We elect a parliament. And the prime minister is whoever holds the confidence of that parliament. So we elect 650 people from across the country to represent us in parliament. And the largest party, the majority party of that, will have a leader. Now, if they get annoyed with that leader, if they think that leader isn't delivering, if they lose confidence in that leader, they can throw that leader out The parliament remains the same, but they find a process to replace that leader. It happened with Theresa May. It's happened with Boris Johnson. It It actually happened with Margaret Thatcher back in 1990 as well, two years before the next general election. And just from my perspective on the other side of the ocean, you know, our politics can be very brutal. So can yours. I mean, just when there's a little bit of blood in the water. It, it just becomes sometimes this feeding frenzy. And Boris got, you know, hounded out of office, basically. It's down in this leadership competition to a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you were explaining how this works. There's not going to be like a primary election among the voters. It's a very small number, relatively speaking, of dues-paying party members who will make this choice. What does that look like? Who are these final two candidates? And... Is the conventional wisdom that Liz Truss, one of the two, is the heavy favorite to win? That's right. Firstly, it's a remarkably small selectorate. Selectorate, not electorates. It's only around 180,000 people who are members of the Conservative Party, we think. We don't know the full number. The party keep that to themselves. But being a member of a party means you, you pay a monthly subscription and you get to select members. You go to the meetings. You deliver the leaflets. You're that kind of activist for the party. Very like politically the, the charged base. people. The base. Uh, but a very small number of people. Only a 180,000, we think. Now, these are the people that will be selecting that next leader out of two. The way the Conservative Party runs this is that MPs whittle the wide field that was initially around 14 candidates. MPs choose the final two. They do that day by day. Members of Parliament, exactly. And then the final two go to that Conservative Party membership. The final two, Rishi Sunak was the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Treasury Secretary. He resigned, and that is broadly thought to have brought Boris Johnson down. He was a very heavyweight political figure, and his resignation as Chancellor is one of the big things that kicked off what Boris Johnson described as the herd moving. And when the herd moves, it moves. Uh, There were over 60 resignations from Boris Johnson's government, and that's what brought him down. My full interview with Tom Harwood of GB News here in London Available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also on the free podcast, every day on demand, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, well, it's a viral video that has made it halfway around the world. I saw it here from Yankee Stadium in the Bronx last night. A gentleman consuming his beer in a way that has stoked a great deal of controversy. We will break it down and weigh in after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch on this Tuesday from London. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Every single day, the podcast is free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm starting on my vacation tomorrow. 
I'll be out for a week. We'll get into some of that in a moment. But first, we have to talk about this. I had a few people send me the video of a man at Yankee Stadium last night. He was there in the Bronx for the Yankees and the Mets. First time the Yankees have really shown a pulse in a while, it seems, and they beat the Mets. We'll see how they do tonight. But this guy was sitting in the stands, and he was enjoying himself a hot dog and a beer. That might not sound unusual at all. In fact, it's very typical at a baseball game. It's a great combination. And we have talked about hot dogs on this show a lot, the various toppings, condiments, accoutrement that people prefer and not prefer. Well, this is a very untraditional, unorthodox way of using the hot dog while consuming the beer. So picture, if you haven't seen it already, a plastic glass of beer, a cup filled almost to the top with whatever, you know, some bud product or something. I'm not sure what they sell at the stadium. So picture a plastic cup filled with beer. And then this gentleman decided to use his hot dog as a straw. So he hollowed out the middle of the hot dog lengthwise. So there was a hole going all the way through like a straw. And then he dunked the cooked hot dog into the beer and consumed the beer that way. And someone a few rows behind him had all of this on tape. They were filming him on their phone as this all played out. And so that went on social media. It went everywhere. And, of course, people have strong feelings. I saw some people calling for him to be imprisoned. This should not be allowed. Other people saying we endorse the hot dog straw. And let me just, on this very crucial issue, put in my two cents. Number one, the hot dog beer combination is a staple of American life, especially at a Major League Baseball game. I have no objection, obviously, to that. I object strongly to manipulating a hot dog the way that would be necessary to do to make this work, especially in public in a setting like that. It would be weird enough if you did it in the privacy of your home where you can sort of handle this food product, which is already sort of a sketchy food product, let's be honest. It's delicious. I like it. I have no problem with hot dogs, but I don't want to know very much about them. I don't really want to know what's in them. You just kind of don't think too hard and enjoy. So if you're going to be doing a lot of manipulation of this meat-type material, doing that in full view of total strangers, I think, is maybe gross to begin with. And then just... Sucking the beer through the hot dog meat is gross. I don't know what else to say. And so that's what he did. All that being said, I don't have that hardcore of a take on it because let the man live. It's a free country. He wasn't breaking the law. He was doing something very bizarre and perhaps unnatural and something that you don't want to see. It's sort of like an unsightly spectacle. But... There are many worse things out there, and I think we can generally cut people slack. He had no idea he was being filmed. Although you're kind of inviting it. If that's what you're doing at a baseball game with hundreds of people all around you, someone's going to whip out the phone. So I'm a no on what he did, but I'm also a no on piling on the guy. Just like he can have his strange peccadillos and live his life and leave him alone. And he was a Yankee fan, not a Met fan. So he went home a winner regardless. And now he's the newest star of the Internet. Christine, I wonder what you make of this. I, I kind of suspect you are not a fan, but 
I don't know. This this is at least a borderline case because sometimes you surprise me on stuff like this. You know, this is where I draw the line. I may pour pickle juice on potato chips, and I may I may have some taste that you think is tacky, but this is something where I think you and I can uh, agree on. You don't drink beer through a hot dog little hole. No. Let me ask you this, though. If you were at any sort of event, whether it was a game or a party or just in your own house, and you had a choice, and this is obviously not the case with this man. He is making a proactive decision to do this. He wants to do this, but I'm tweaking it for you. If the choice was you drink your booze through a hot dog straw or you cannot consume the booze, do you just make your peace with the hot dog straw? Grill them up so I can make those holes. <laughs> okay. Dan, Yankee fan, did you see this video before I texted it to the group? I did. It was all over Twitter uh, last night, and I thought it was pretty interesting. I admire the ingenuity of it. It's kind of like a DIY, would you do that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, but gross, just absolutely gross. I've also seen someone dunk a hot dog in a bun in soda at a ballpark, and Ooh. that's also gross. In a soda? Yeah, in a soda. No. No. What is wrong with people? Honestly, just that is not okay. And just a soggy bun? Absolutely not. All right, we will move on from that. As I mentioned, tomorrow... I am heading on vacation. I'll be in two different countries. I'm here in the U.K. now. I fly out tomorrow morning. We talked earlier in the hour with Kat Timph about the back end of the trip, and I'm just really crossing my fingers on all the flight arrangements because it's been a nightmare summer in the U.S. in air travel, and apparently it's been in many ways just as bad over here. So knock on wood, fingers and toes cross, all of that. But I should, with Adam B., for a number of days in Greece with Kennedy and that whole crew for her big 5-0. Really excited for that. But before then, the whole reason I'm over on this side of the Atlantic to begin with is for a football game, an American football game, being played on Saturday in Dublin, Ireland. My Northwestern Wildcats taking on the Cornhuskers of Nebraska in a technical home game for Northwestern, even though it is many miles away from Chicago. And I have no idea how many fans are supposed to be there of either school. Nebraska has a much bigger fan base than we do, so they'll probably outnumber us, although we have a pretty good-sized fan base, certainly on the East Coast and also in Europe. So I would imagine there'll be a few thousand fans in purple, maybe a few more thousand fans in red, and then just, I guess, some Irish folks who might be curious, come out to the game at this rugby stadium in the capital city of Ireland, and I'm hoping that they will side with Northwestern because our head coach is named Patrick Fitzgerald, so a very Irish name, and so maybe the locals will just by default root for us. And he's done some interviews over in Ireland, and I think there have been a few profiles of him in local media, so maybe people will have gotten the memo and root for us. We are two touchdown underdogs, just under two touchdown underdogs. I was in Nebraska last year for the NU versus UNL game, and the Huskers just blew the doors off of us. We were awful last year, but so was Nebraska. We were their only Big Ten conference win last year, but it was by, it felt like by 50 to 100 points. It wasn't quite that bad, but it felt that bad. It was awful. I left in the third quarter, which I never do. And so 
let's just say I am not overly optimistic about this game. I'm always hopeful. The defense and the offense were putrid last season, so maybe they've made some strides. Maybe they'll come out with a better game plan. Maybe they'll exact their revenge. I just don't really want to set expectations somewhere that is unrealistic given last year's season outcome, three wins, nine losses. And so I'm just going to leave it at that. I'll be in purple, of course, rooting on the Wildcats to beat Nebraska. And it'll be cool. Like, it's, it was a no-brainer for me to go to this game because two of my greatest passions in life are Northwestern sports and international travel, and here was an opportunity to do both. And I'd never really spent much time in Ireland. In fact, I was debating whether or not I'd really ever been there because I've been in the airport in Shannon, Ireland. Regular listeners of the show might remember I traveled to Russia before the pandemic. I traveled to Russia with Secretary Mike Pompeo as part of his press delegation on his trip to Sochi. He stopped a few other places as well. And because he was flying one of the Air Force Two-style 737s, it couldn't make it all the way from Sochi back to the U.S. So we had to stop in Shannon, Ireland, overnight for maybe an hour or two, refuel, and then go the rest of the way to Joint Base Andrews, and the trip terminated there. But we were able to get off the plane. They opened up a little bar for us at the airport. I did have some beer, including at least a little bit of Guinness. I'm not a huge Guinness fan. So... In that sense, I have been on Irish soil. I did like kind of half an Irish thing, but overall I'm not counting that as really a trip to Ireland. This will be different. So a couple days in Dublin, we're going to do one night out on the coast, which apparently is beautiful. We're renting a car with friends and driving west. So I've heard it's just a beautiful place with very friendly people, and then it culminates with the game on Saturday. And then Sunday, it's off for Kennedy's celebration in the Mediterranean. So it's just a very exciting, very busy week ahead for me. Lots of travel. So it's going to be kind of exhausting. Like It'll be fun, I think, but not relaxing. But that's okay. It's the choice that I've made. And, you know, it all would be made a lot better, would feel better if Northwestern somehow pulled a big upset. We'll see. Here I am getting too hopeful. Nope. Rain it in. We're going to rain it in. Christine... Do you have any questions, particularly about the Irish leg of the journey? Ah, wee laddie. I hope the Irish eyes will be smiling down on you on Saturday. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for that. Do you have any questions? And and please feel free to use your normal voice. Will you be having some lucky charms when you're over there? I don't even think that's a thing over there. I think that's a thing back home. What about some whiskey? Uh, I will be having, I would imagine, whiskey and beer, I think is what I will mostly be imbibing on the alcoholic side of things, yes. Will you be searching for a pot of gold if you see that rainbow? I will not. I think that I have a pretty packed schedule and, you know, chasing leprechauns, not on the list. I really, Dan can't stop laughing over here. I thought that was pretty good, actually, compared to a lot of other. It is not your worst. It is definitely not your worst. And I didn't turn it into a pirate, which I usually do. I was waiting for the pirate to emerge. I was waiting for the Jamaican sort of little (laughs) influence to arrive, but you, you mostly kept it on the track. Yes. Well, I hope you have a wonderful time. We are going to miss you here very much, but um, you 
the show will be in good hands. I'm going to be taking over for the whole week. <laughs> oh, boy. So I, I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to be studying up on everything I need to know. Uh, War Wyatt's going to give me the basics on Ukraine. Uh, no. <laughs> we will be having some fabulous guest hosts taking the reins, and I'll, I'll be guiding them. So good luck to them. By the way, I should have mentioned this when I was talking about the football game, and i got to do some cross-promotion here. The game itself, Northwestern Nebraska on Saturday from Dublin, is broadcast live on Fox. Big Fox, check your local listings, and root for the purple. All right, Christine, well, uh, and team, good luck. Godspeed in my absence, and we will do our best to make it back safely and soundly to the U.S. next week. In the meantime, that's it from London here for the week. Thank you all so much for listening. Oh, Johnny boy, I think Guy Benson just Irish goodbye me. I think you're right. All righty then. Well, I'm Cookie, and I'm wishing you all the luck of the Irish. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.